Heavenly Father, thank you that you still speak to people today. Thank you for what you've already been saying to us through the songs, the prayers, the testimonies. We pray now that you'll help us uh, before the baptisms themselves just to understand something more of the great good news of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, in April of this year, you may have seen in the press uh, that it was reported and I was astonished at the figure uh, that around £4.2 million pounds, uh, lies somewhere in unclaimed benefits in the UK. And that's particularly relevant because 1.8 million pensioners live in poverty as the government describes it. Uh, the Director General of Age Concern said, older people who are finding it difficult to manage financially could be entitled to claim benefits worth hundreds, even thousands of pounds a year. So, why don't they claim what is rightfully theirs? One reason, of course, is the complexity of all the forms that you have to fill in. But there is another underlying reason, which was headline news, the Daily Telegraph headed it, Pride Before Benefits Fall and said this, people of post-retirement age tend to be very proud and expect to earn everything that is given to them, which in real terms they have by working hard and paying taxes and national insurance all their lives. In other words, you can miss out because you don't want to receive what you perceive as being a handout. Pride gets in the way of claiming what is rightfully yours. Now, the purpose of me mentioning this is not for all the pensioners here to go home and uh, fill in forms and claim what is theirs, but if you're missing out, by all means do that. Uh, what I want to suggest to you is that there are far greater benefits that you can be missing out because of pride. And to illustrate this, I want to read a story uh, from the Old Testament part of the Bible, as you may know. If you maybe don't know, this big book has two parts. The first part is called the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Scriptures, and the second part is called the New Testament, which is a bit shorter, uh, and that's the story about Jesus. But the two have come together, uh, they're both God's Word, and I want to illustrate what I've just said about pride getting in the way by looking at a man who missed out on something far more important. He missed out, almost missed out, on being healed from an incurable disease. Because of pride allied with prejudice. So, very unoriginal title. Pride and Prejudice. Uh, if you want to turn to it in the Bible, there are Bibles in the pews. What I'm going to do is take you through the story, uh, verse by verse, and just comment as we read the story together. I'm not going to read all 15 verses at one go. We'll read a bit at a time. And as we read, we're going to be introduced to four main characters in the story. Some of you may have read this story in the past at Sunday School. Some of you may not have ever heard anything about the man in the story and what actually happened. But it's on page 373 if you want to follow. Now the first character that we meet in the story is an important man with a serious problem. An important man with a serious problem. Verse 1, we're introduced to him. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. The man in question is called Naaman. Not a very familiar name. I don't suppose there's any Naamans here. There may well be. Who knows? 
He's an important man, a great man in the sight of his master, who is the king of Aram, which is roughly speaking, not exactly, but it is pretty much what modern Syria is today, Aram. The reason for his fame is that he's a military man, he's a general in charge of the army, who has been very successful in leading the armies to victory. Uh, The verse actually says that God was behind it. Maybe he knew that, maybe he didn't. And he isn't one of those generals who leads from behind, but he leads from the front, for we also realise he's very courageous, he's a valiant soldier. And no doubt, along with all this, went all the material trappings you'd expect. He's probably a man who had everything going for him. Except for one thing. He was an important person with a serious problem. But he had leprosy. And if you look at the Bible in the little tiny print at the bottom, if you can't read it properly, then go and see Donald Cameron and he'll fix you up some specs. But uh, it's a very tiny print at the bottom of the page that tells us leprosy, the word is used for various diseases affecting the skin, not necessarily leprosy. It's probably not the modern tropical disease that we call leprosy, but nonetheless, its effects were similar. Physically, white or pink patches on the body, which produced insensitivity to pain, and people therefore got their limbs damaged because they couldn't feel pain and got burnt or hurt. But more seriously, with the social effects, skin diseases like this were regarded as highly contagious, and so people who had them were often ostracised by others, even banned from society. Now, probably that wasn't true for Naaman because of his position. But nonetheless... His leprosy was a serious blemish on his otherwise outstanding career and his future health prospects were not good. Now, what I simply want to say at this point is there are many people like Naaman today. Not many sufferers with leprosy, for thankfully we have modern drugs that can cure things like that. And maybe other diseases for which there's little cure or not very good cure, like AIDS or heart disease or cancer which can strike regardless of age or status or wealth or even age. However, there are other problems that beset our lives, if we're honest. Habits and addictions, character traits and compulsions, which drive and threaten to ruin us and our otherwise promising prospects. Usually they're secret battles, at least until they become more powerful. Sometimes people carry them to their grave. We discover the person we admired and envied so much struggle with personal demons that we knew little about. good example of this in a famous poem. You may not have read the poem. It's a poem by an American called Edward Arlington Robinson. Uh, but Simon and Garfunkel uh, modified it and sang it on one of their songs, if you're of my age and were a great Simon and Garfunkel fan. The song's called, or the, the poem's called, Richard Corey. Listen to what the poet writes. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown... We people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean-favoured and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked. But still he fluttered pulses when he said good morning, and he glittered while he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked, and waited for the light, and went without the meat, and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. So, what about you? What's the butt in your life, the greatest problem? 
What is it that seems to spoil your life and your prospects? What is the one thing you wish you could get rid of? Whatever that thing may be, and it will vary from person to person, I want to say that your real problem lies deeper. These things are but symptoms of an underlying dis-ease. I say this not on my own authority, but in the authority of this book, the Bible, God's Word. The Bible has several different names that describe different aspects of this disease. Uh, complicated words like transgressions, iniquities, trespasses, or the word that James just mentioned we sang about, the word sin. Our serious problem is sin. One from which, without exception, whoever you are, and I may never have met you before, we all suffer. The Bible says all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Sin means that we miss the mark. We fall short of what God expects for us. Worst of all, God's sin separates us from that relationship with God for which we were made. And unless it's remedied, it will prove fatal. For the Bible also says, the wages of sin is death. So is there any remedy, any hope? To find out, let's go back to the story. As far as Naaman is concerned, he's got leprosy. It's an incurable disease. But he's about to be surprised as we meet the second person in the story. Now we're in verse 2. Now Bans from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, you couldn't find a greater contrast between two people than comparing Naaman with this girl. We don't even learn her name. She's an insignificant girl with a crucial role. First of all, most obvious, she's a young girl, a young woman. And in an age in which she lived, women counted for very little. Young women counted for even less. And in her case, she counts even less than that because she's a slave. She belongs to someone else, the property of her mistress. You can imagine what happened from the story. Naaman, her husband, is out on one of his military expeditions over the border into neighbouring Israel. When he got home, his wife said to him, as wives always do, had a good day, dear. And he said, yeah, great. Picked up a nice bracelet, beautiful vase, I thought you'd like these. Oh, and by the way, picked up a nice young girl. Thought she might prove useful around the house. I've locked her in the shed with the pigs. You imagine that young girl. She'd lost her freedom and her dignity. She'd become a piece of property like a, like a hog or a hoe. And finally, if that weren't bad enough, she was, of course, a foreigner. We all know that foreigners often have a lesser status in society, and certainly in those days, that would be true for slaves as much as anyone else. So, she was an insignificant girl, but it turned out she had a vital role to play. Reading between the lines of the story, it would appear that she probably got on pretty well with General and Mrs. Naaman. But we discover that she's concerned for the welfare of her master. One day she mentions in passing, or maybe even on purpose, that there is a remedy for Naaman's disease. She says to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. This girl is a member of the nation of Israel. Despite all that has happened to her, she hasn't abandoned her faith in the God of Israel, the one true God of all, or her confidence in this prophet who lives in the city of Samaria, who she knows possesses God's power to heal. And so she speaks up. 
suppose in Christian terms, you want jargon, we'd call it witnessing. Or, heard it this evening, giving a testimony. It's not a long testimony. Just a simple heartfelt wish for the welfare of another person. But it proves to be a crucial link in what follows. Now before we move on, let me say something to those of us who, like those being baptised, have by God's grace come to know his son Jesus Christ. And so you belong to God's people. What I want to say to you is, whoever you are, God can use you to play a vital role in the life of someone like Naaman. Someone who needs to know there is a remedy for his or her serious problem. You may say, I'm not very significant. Or my circumstances mean that my opportunities are limited. And God forbid you could say, look, the way God has treated me, I'm not going to say anything on his behalf. You may say, I can't explain things very well. Let alone preach a sermon. But you can express a simple, heartfelt wish to someone that you're in relationship with. If only you knew the Lord Jesus Christ. He could help you. He could meet you. He could save you. Here's what Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, wrote to some Christians who were actually being terribly persecuted for their faith. He says to them, be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Like that foreign slave girl, you can play a vital role in someone's life. As we read on and meet the third person in the story, a powerful king with an impossible demand. Let's read on. It's a great story, this. Verse 4, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read this letter... He tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. Now you can guess what happened. Naaman's wife says to her husband, You know what the slave girl said? There's a guy in Israel, she reckons, who can cure you of your leprosy. Now, maybe she doesn't get the details correct. Or more likely, Naaman does what important people always do. Here's a problem, let's go to the top. So he goes and speaks to his master, the king of Aram. And the king of Aram says, no problem. He does the same thing. Let's go to the top. So he writes a letter, and he sends this letter with Naaman, with this great load of gifts. If you look at the bottom in the small print again, tons of gold and silver and ten sets of clothes. And he says, off you go. And so he turns up at the palace of the king of Israel. And he says, you can imagine the king, you know, all this great retinue arrives at the palace door. It's Naaman, the famous general. You know, and the king comes out and he says, Your Majesty, here's a letter from the king of Aram. And he opens it and the letter says, With this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, like every ruler in those days, the king of Israel is a powerful king with absolute authority as ruler of his nation, along with abundant resources in wealth and personnel which his position provides. But despite his authority and resources, the letter presents the king of Israel with an impossible demand. 
If you got really upset in those days, you tore your clothes. I won't demonstrate. But you, you, you <laughs> my wife won't want to sew on the buttons. But you tore your clothes in distress. He turns his robes and he says, "Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me." <clears throat> but it's right when he asks, "Am I God?" No, he isn't. Yet, how often powerful people—you may be one. Influential people, wealthy people, live and act as though we are God until we're presented with an impossible demand that you can't resolve. To quote another poet, an older poet from the 18th century, Thomas Gray, who studied this, I remember studying this at school, elegy written in a country churchyard. He looks around the graveyards, graveyard and the headstones the boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that welfare gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. No, the King of Israel is not God, and neither are you and I. But there is a God, the one true God who can heal leprosy and save sinners from death, as we discover as we come to the fourth and final person in the story. Fourth and finally, a godly prophet with a divine remedy. Verse 8, let's read on. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. The king of Israel thinks that the king of Aram is spoiling for a fight, making an excuse to attack him. But he's mistaken. He receives a message from the very prophet that the girl has spoken about in Israel. A man named Elisha. He's a godly prophet, a man who knows the one true God. He is called by God to serve and speak him. And when God calls someone to serve him, he equips them. He is equipped by the Lord to act on his behalf. He is a godly prophet with a divine remedy. When he hears what has happened, he sends a message to the king of Israel. Why have you torn your robes? You could have saved a nice pair of robes here, king. Make the man come to me and he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman and his retinue set off. It's an interesting story, isn't it? It's very much like the story we'll think about at Christmas. You remember those wise guys, kings from the east or whatever they were? They turn up in a palace. They were at the wrong place. They need to be in a stable. And Naaman and his retinue have turned up at the place where they thought they were going to get an answer to the palace. And they say, no, you need to go to the house of this prophet called Elisha. I just love this story. You imagine, Elisha wasn't a well-off guy. You know, imagine you lived in the neighborhood, you know, it's just a wonderful story, isn't it? And, uh, and you know, you heard this rumble of chariots coming down the road, and everything. all the kids are running in front, shouting, it's Naaman, General Naaman! You know, and they're, they're laden down with, you know, I don't know what they put the ten sets of clothes in, you know, did they hang them on rack? I don't know, you know, just got the picture, you can just mind that, can't you, all this gold and silver and stuff. And finally, they roll up to the prophet's house. Maybe there's a trumpeter, blow a trumpet and said, General Naaman is at the door. And then what happens? That's a great story. There's a long pause. Finally, the side gate opens and that little guy comes out who's a servant. And he scuttles up to the chariot and he says, My master says, Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. Your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. 
There's the answer. The remedy that is offered. Now we get to the heart of our subject, pride and prejudice. Notice Naaman's angry response. Verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfa, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the rivers of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. You see, Naaman is an important man, but he's got a problem with pride. I thought he'd put on a big show, he says. He expects an impressive show because of who he is. He's saying, in effect, don't you know who I am? Once heard a lovely story, I'm sure this is probably apocryphal, about Fergus McCann, the great saviour of Celtic Football Club when he was the chairman. The story goes that he turned up one day in his big car at the official car park at Celtic Park and uh, the, the wee guy on the door didn't know who he was and so he didn't let him in. And Fergus McCann said, oh, do you know who I am? And the wee boy shouted across to his friend, Hey, Jimmy, there's a wee man here who doesn't know who he is. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, people with power and influence, pride is a great thing, isn't it? Do you know who I am? All he gets is a message from a servant. Doesn't the prophet know who he is? Yes, Elijah knows who he is. But he knows he's a proud man who needs to know that God's favours are not earned by virtue of who you are, but in spite of who you are. See, God's greatest favour, we focused on it this evening, God's greatest favour he could do for you is to forgive your sin and cleanse you and make you right with himself. But you see, the place you receive it is by grace, not by merit. Whoever you are this evening, however good or bad you think you are, you have to come to the level ground at the cross of Jesus and kneel in humility and accept God's remedy for sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, we've been singing about it, God's Son purifies us from every sin. But so often, like Naaman, pride gets in the way and along with it comes prejudice. Do you see it? Naaman says, Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. If he has to wash in a river, he says, listen, I've got better rivers back home than muddy Jordan. Now the point is, there's no special merit in the river Jordan. Over and above any other river then and now. There are some Christians who go to Israel especially to be baptised in the river Jordan. That's a nice touch. Frankly, it doesn't make any difference. whether. You... In fact, the water in this pool is a lot cleaner and safer than the river Jordan. Take my word for it. No, the only merit in Naaman washing seven times in the River Jordan is this is the means God has chosen. It doesn't become a sacred spot where lepers go for the rest of eternity. The only case we know of anybody being washed in the River Jordan and getting cured of leprosy. But you see, Naaman prefers his own choice. And many people are like him today. Surely they say, my own religion, my own merits, my own choice is just as good. In fact, even better than what God chooses. But if we're to be healed from the deadly virus of sin, which infects us all, we need to come God's way through the one whom God alone has chosen to bring salvation. The early Christians were absolutely convinced about this. Jesus the only way. This is what they preach. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now it may be politically incorrect to say that these days, as it was then. It's also unpopular for people Many people like Naaman who get angry when they hear this. So, 
here's Naaman in this terrible rage. He goes away angry. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. We're nearly getting to the end of the story. Stay with me. It ends with Naaman's salvation. How do you get saved? You need to do two things. Okay? First of all, you need to change your mind about what God has said. The Bible calls this repentance, which means change of mind. Look what happens. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Think again. And I simply say to you this evening, maybe you've rejected the Christian message. Maybe you grew up with it and have rejected it. Maybe you've never heard it before or you think you know what it's about. And I simply say to you, whatever it is, think again. The Bible says you need to think about what God said. Change your mind. Think, think about it. But you also need to do something about it. Not only a change of mind, but a change of direction. He's heading away angry. His servants speak to him. He changes his mind. And then he changes direction. The Bible calls that faith. Doing what God says. So he went. Verse 14. Went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. As the man of God had told him. Again, it's a lovely story. Imagine him going down once, twice, three times, four times, five times. Any difference? No. Five times. I don't know why seven. Perfect number and all that in Hebrew. But whatever. Seven times. As he comes at the seventh time. His flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. What a transformation. Yet he almost missed out because of pride and prejudice. He had to turn away from his anger, turn to God and do what God had said. Now today God's command to us is not to go to the River Jordan and wash and be cleansed. God's command and his promise given on the birthday of the church when the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people. And the people said, what do we do about our sin? Peter said, repent. Peter, the leader of the apostles, said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yet for so many people, still today I find that pride gets in the way. We don't like the idea of blood and sacrifice. There must be some nicer way. We don't like the idea that our good deeds and social status count for nothing. Surely we're better than average and not nearly so bad as many. We don't like the idea that only Jesus can forgive sins. And we don't like the idea of baptism, at least as Shona said, public baptism. Surely couldn't I be baptized in my own jacuzzi with the gold-plated taps? Or how about my indoor swimming pool? Or even, okay, if you've not got one, how about coming past it to my house and doing it in the bath at home? So, you know, we'll just do it privately. But behind all these is pride. We need to come God's way if we want to be cleansed. Now, let me make it clear. There is no special power in this water. You are not saved by being baptized. You are baptized because you've been saved. Baptism is God's way by which you tell the world that you're a follower of his son, Jesus Christ, who himself was baptized when he humbled himself in the River Jordan, taking our sin on himself. So Naaman swallowed his pride, put aside his prejudice, and did what God had said. And after the seventh time, God did what he promised to do. Naaman was restored to health, cleansed from his leprosy. What a transformation. What conclusion did he draw from it? Verse 15. 
Then Naaman and all his attenders went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. He realized from experience that the Lord was the one true God. He didn't conclude, now I know that the Jordan is a very special river. But that the Lord was a special God, the one true God, whom he determined with the best of his ability and the limitations of his experience to worship this one God from now on. Now, I've almost finished. What is your own conclusion? Do you know from personal experience the one true God? This is what Jesus himself said. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. John 17 verse 3. We began by focusing on poor pensioners who are missing out on benefits, some through pride. I simply want to say this evening, don't miss out through pride or prejudice. For this is a far more important issue that God offers. The forgiveness of sins, peace with God. It is a matter of life and death, of eternal life and death. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story that's a picture, really a symbol of the way that we must come, accepting your provision and remedy for sin. Thank you for those who are about to be baptized and symbolize that for themselves. We pray that each one of us here may humble ourselves before you, may come in repentance and faith in Christ and experience that forgiveness of sins that only the death of Jesus can provide. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.